Good morning, as Daniel said, I'm Justin Collins, uh, pastoral intern. Um, so when Daniel asked me to be a part of the series, um, asked to preach his fifth letter um, to, in the book of Revelation, of course I said yes, right? After all, I'm an intern. <laughs> you can't say no. Um, you, just, you could, but that doesn't go well for your internship. And so he told me the verse, and I was excited. Uh, Revelation 3, chapters 1 through, I mean, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I became even more excited because I said, this is six verses, right? So yes, I have to put work in, but not as much work as I thought I was going to have to, right? Exegesis might be pretty easy, and, you know, we keep moving. <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> when I started to prepare the sermon... I literally had nothing. I went right to my computer, set it up. Kids went to bed early. Wife was gracious, you know, gave me some space. I'm writing, and hour later, page is blank, right? And this was a couple weeks ago. Went on and on and on again. And I think as we come to read this passage, you'll see what, what part of my struggles was, is that there really wasn't much here telling me what the problem at the church of Sardis was. Um, thinking about it now, thinking through it a little bit more, I think that's exactly the point of Jesus when he's writing through John in this, when he's speaking through John, who's writing, excuse me, in this letter, is that it's exactly what you don't see that actually unlocks the interpretive key and the guide to, to actually make this make sense. So, without further ado, let's stand to read. Uh, again, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please join me in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come before your people uh, and to deliver your word. Father, I have prepared, I have studied, but I need your power in order to preach. I pray that as I stumble and mumble through this, that you are glorified, uh, and that as you have promised, that your word will not return unto you void. Father, these people need to hear from you and not from me. Father, remove me out of the way. Allow your voice to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. As is part of the normal rhythm of this, of this series, um, a lot of background information is generally given on, to, on the cities and, and hope to see how that helps shape and form the way that the sermon is, is going to go, right? In a way that that helps shape and forms what Jesus is indeed saying to these churches. Well, like I was saying before, there's, there's not much here, right? Sardis is not that much different than the other cities that we've been studying 
up until now. Um, like the other cities, there's pagan worship. Like the other cities, there's emperor worship. Economic stability is tied to one's willingness to submit to uh, those things. So what makes this city so different? I think there's one thing that, that this city has that, that the other ones didn't. Um, and the city had a reputation before it was part of the Roman Empire of being a city that was easy to defend, right? It was literally a city on a hill. Um, if I have any Lord of the Rings fans in here, it was like Helm's Deep in the Two Towers, right? That city where the, the king fled to at the end of the, second, of the second movie or the second book, depending on which one you watched or read. And it worked, right? For years, kings could go and hide out in the city. They wouldn't be destroyed. They could survive. They could hold up. And like Helm's Deep, the city had one weakness, right, uh, which was exploited. And Sardis fell. Fell not once, but twice. And it became sort of a saying that Sardis squandered that which it had due to inactivity and unattentiveness to its own resources, right? That it was inattentive to its weaknesses and it fell. So that helped a little bit, right? So the church at Sardis, there's, there's something going on with, with inattentiveness. Now as we go back to the letter itself, um, it starts out the same as all the other letters we've, we started with, right? Jesus says to them, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Up until now, every single time that we heard about other churches and their works, there was something something to commend about them. But here, there's nothing. Um, Made me ask the question, why? After all, there were churches that were full of sexual morality, compromised religious worship, adherence to cultic guilds, and so on. And even these places, Jesus had something good to say about but not so much the church at Sardis. So I did what any struggling seminarian would do when you come to a roadblock and you've done your exegesis, you've done your language work, you consult commentaries, right? You go to the people who get paid to write these things who should know and we try not to steal from, you know, (laughs) but sometimes we mess up. And they all suggested that spiritual decline was what was going on. You say, well, fine, but that doesn't really help, right? Why was there spiritual decline? And I think the answer to that question comes in exactly what I was saying before, that there's no hint, there's differences in this letter versus the other ones, and that biggest difference is that here there's no hint of persecution. All the other letters we've been looking at, there's been threats to the church that Jesus has commended them for working through. So, for example, to the church at Ephesus, he says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. To the church at Smyrna, I know your affliction and poverty. At Pergamum, you live where Satan's Satan's throne is. Pretty sure there would be persecution if they live where Satan's throne is. And so I find it hard to believe that Sardis is then the only city in the Roman Empire, well, the only city that had, I'm going, moving too much? They just like this. (laughs) <laughs> that Chartis, Sardis is then the only city that wouldn't have persecution, right? I mean, it seems that if there's active witness to Christ that they would face much the same fate as the other cities had before them. Except if they hid their allegiance to Jesus Christ. 
In other words, if, if they were Christians in private only and in public, they look like everyone else. So I thought about this. I thought about a miniseries that I had seen before. Um, it was entitled Queen. In 1993, I think it was on CBS, there was a miniseries called Queen. Queen was a book written by Alex Haley. Alex Haley wrote a few other books, most famous for the autobiography as told to Malcolm X and Roots. Right? And Roots is the story of how he believed, my wife and I had an argument over this, was it fiction or nonfiction? But he had a story over uh, his father's family, how he believed that they came to America, right? And if you haven't read it and you haven't seen it, don't worry, they're coming out with a remake. You can catch it in a couple of months and you'll be all caught up. But Queen was the story of his grandmother, his paternal grandmother. She was uh, in the miniseries played by Halle Berry, um, and she was the product of the slave master's son and a slave played by Jasmine Guy. That's important because Jasmine Guy is, is very fair-skinned. Um, you have the slave master, so you can imagine then that the product of that union would have been a very fair-skinned mixed child. Well, as the story goes along, uh, living on the plantation, the plantation ends up going broke after the Civil War, and she's forced to leave. And as she goes through life, they don't really know that she's black, that, she, that, that she's at least half black. She lives her life as a white woman. And it would make sense at that time to do that, right? I mean, if I had to live as a, as a black woman in the 1800s, I don't think I'd be too happy about it. Um, she faced uh, persecution, she faced the threat of violence against her, she faced poverty and, every, and all those other things, but what she found was that if she just hid who she was, that all those things went away. That's what we call, it was what's known as passing, right? It's just, just the term for it. Well, unfortunately, towards the end of the story, uh, people do find out she's engaged to marry a, a Confederate soldier. That's strange in and of itself. Um, he drugs her and she confesses to being of mixed race, at which time all of her fears, everything she had worked so hard to fight against, comes true. Right? She's abused by him, used uh, physically, and put out. I think this is probably what happened at the church at Sardis as well. The church probably started off very well trying to make an impact in its city. You know, much like Christ Central, it probably had amazing growth in a short period of time. And it had incredible dreams for what the city could look like, right? What it should look like. It had incredible dreams for you know, bringing justice uh, to the city where there might not have been much of that. I imagine that sometimes I imagine sometimes, hello? hello? Can I get the handheld mic? That might, but, all right, let me start, start over again. I imagine that sometime afterwards that the church started to fail. Maybe there was a scandal. Maybe they didn't see as many conversions as they hoped for. Perhaps the city just refused to listen to them. Whatever the case, they fell into the trap of believing that their Christianity was only a private matter. Right, that we're going to keep it hidden, we're going to not endure this persecution, and that when we get together on Sundays, 
We'll sing our songs, we'll believe what we believe, but in public, we're gonna look like everyone else, right? They would pass. A few months ago, this church participated uh, in an event called Q Commons, and it really was a great event if you were able to make it. The purpose of that event was to discuss how we Christians interact with our changing culture. One of the topics that they addressed, addressed in that was the irrelevancy of faith, right? And so the, the speaker on that talked about how, through surveys they had done, that in the, in the UK, for example, Many believe that Jesus was an unnecessary, unhelpful add-on to life, right? In other words, people just don't need him. And what they did was they conveyed that they feel that this is the trajectory of a great many cities around the world, right? Where Jesus is just viewed as some interesting guy, but for the most part, he's irrelevant to life in general. Another interesting bit from the Q Commons was that not only is Jesus viewed as irrelevant, but that his followers, depending on some of our acts, are viewed as extremists, right? So not only are we irrelevant, but we're dangerous. I don't know how those two work together, but he said it, so I'll blame him. So I think for us that a great temptation of living in this type of environment is that we seek ways to, one, not be irrelevant, right? and to both be viewed as extreme. And, and sometimes when we do this, we find ways to hide in and from the culture. So for example, on our jobs, or in the classroom, or just around our non-believing friends, we always seek to be viewed as part of the group, right? It becomes very hard to be viewed as, as an outsider in those situations. After all, we all want to be liked. I think like the character Queen, some of us might be afraid of people finding out that we take our faith too seriously. Right. Nobody has a problem with Christians as long as we keep our faith to ourselves, right? As long as we keep it out of the public square and it doesn't impact the life around us, people generally leave us alone. But when we bring our faith to bear in our life situations uh, and we actually stand on what God has said, this is usually when people have a problem, right? Usually when those issues come up. I think for the church at Sardis, they realized this and probably thought it wasn't worth the effort. There's another danger that exists in, in fighting against this tendency to be irrelevant, and that's that we be, try to become so relevant that we actually become irrelevant, right? So for example, I think one of the dangers for us as a church that desires to be a multi-ethnic, multi-class, multi-generational, multi-everything church is that we, try, that we could try to become so relevant that we actually become irrelevant in the first place. That if we don't see the results that we're looking for through the normal preaching of the word, through the normal means that God has given to the church, through the sacraments like you saw today, baptism and communion, that we can become a church that's so driven by programs, so driven by aesthetics, that we forget what our primary mission is and that is to be a life-saving mission, preaching Christ and Him crucified. The church at Sardis had fallen asleep and is dead, and if we're not careful, we may lay down as well. Jesus tells the church, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, 
for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know the hour that I come against you. Howard Kleinbell, who's an author who, writes, who wrote several books on pastoral counseling, says that when a church loses its commitment to its life-saving mission, that, and I quote, church, churches become increasingly irrelevant to the brokenness of individuals, families, and communities around them, end quote. Jesus promises judgment on the churches that have fallen asleep. What I find most interesting about this promise of judgment and Kleinbell's quote as they, as they work together is that Jesus isn't threatening to do something that hasn't already been done by the Sardinian church itself, right? They're already irrelevant. If they stopped preaching, if they stopped having services every Sunday, the neighborhood would not miss them, right? It's one of those questions that church planners and churches ask in neighborhoods. If we weren't here, would the neighborhood miss us? Uh, in the Sardinian case, I would say no. Their, art, their presence is already unnoticed due to their lack of witness, due to their lack of active witness to who Christ is and what he means then for the life of them and for those around them. So that, the, so that their fate is being sealed by themselves. I also think that it's strangely comforting that Jesus promises judgment to these churches. Now stay with me on this. I know it seems strange that it would seem comforting that Jesus promises to, to remove from them uh, who they are. But I often wonder for mission drift, and if I have any project managers in the house, scope creep, um, is that people stop believing that Jesus is active in our lives now. Sure, we believe that if we put our faith in him, uh, that we will be saved over there in, in the great by and by, you know, when we die. But what about the chaos of life now? What about the things that we're suffering now? What about the work that goes, goes unnoticed now? In the church tradition that I came from, the AME church, we used to sing a song, and the song was simply called, You Can't Make Me Doubt Him, right? And the second line was something, I know too much about him. And the main idea of that song was simply that because we know so much about Jesus, there's nothing in this world that can make me doubt that he's for me. And to be honest, I think we lied. We sang the song, it, it made us feel good, but when issues came up, when life began to beat us, and we thought we could never stand up. We had these doubts. But the promise of Jesus' judgment on this church now means that that he's active, that he's ruling and reigning, and means that he takes very seriously his concern and his care over his people and his church. Jesus has kept his promise to us that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us until the end of the age. We will wake up when we return to the simple life-giving message that God, through his Son, has and does love us. And I think it's encouraging that the church that fell asleep can wake up. Jesus is not through with them yet. The good works that they started need to be completed. Our good works that we start need to be completed. And I think they're completed when we understand what Jesus wants his followers to look like. In Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, um, he compares his followers to a city on a hill. Sardis was supposed to be that city on a hill. And he says about us, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives life 
to all those, and it gives light, excuse me, to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. The people of God are not to hide in plain sight. We're not, we're not called on to pass, but we are called to be light in dark places. Wow. If the church at Sardis, if they didn't wake up, and if, if we resist and don't wake up, we will face it. Jesus. But you have to remember what we have learned from the beginning and wake up. Mercy is calling us as Christians to repent for the ways in which we have forgotten him and the ways in which we have made programs and, and external things more important and more formative than knowing who he is. We will have a chance to wake up if we, if we stop being ashamed of Christ and his gospel. Jesus tells uh, the Sardinian church at the end, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white or as Brian Blunt puts it in dazzling clothes for they are worthy the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments and I will never blot out his name of the book of life I will confess his name before my father and before his angels he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches take comfort in this that no matter how alone you feel no matter how alone it may look, the situation may look like, right? If you feel like you're the only Christian who exists, it's not true, right? Even in the situation where the church is described as dead and asleep, God says that he still has people who have not soiled their clothes, people who he has kept through his power as he will keep us through his power now. This is the promise that Christians will persevere. I think I should have wrote it down, I didn't. I think it's chapter 17 of the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the perseverance of the saints, right? And, and what we believe is, of course, is that you can't earn your own salvation. Um, and then the converse is true, right? If I can't earn it, then how, do I lose, then how can I lose it, right? But in the, min in the meantime, in the interim, there's this doctrine that's entitled the perseverance of the saints. And what it says is simply this, that even though... It may be at times that we as Christians sin and, 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 and fall and that we might have to face temporal judgments for those acts that Christ in his mercy still calls us to repent and will bring about that in the lives of those whom he has called. I didn't quote that exactly. I'll have to get it before my ordination exams so that I don't mess up. But that's the basic, uh, that's the basic gist of, of what we're saying, right? It's not once saved, always saved, right? That's sloppy, that's... that's it's walk down and say a prayer, do whatever you want to do. That's not what we're saying. But the church here is, is, is being promised that if they endure, if they persevere, right, that their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. Their, their names are already there, right? It's not that they're trying to get their names written on the roll. They already have salvation in Christ and just need to remember what that looks like. Remember that they need to wake up and endure and that no matter what temporal sufferings may occur, that in the end it's worth it, right? Um, this, this promise to be clothed in white reminds me a lot of Isaiah chapter 1, 16 through 18, and we'll end here, where the kingdom of Judah is just 
crazy, right? They, they turned away from God. They're not who and what God wanted his people to look like. And instead of coming to them and saying, it's over, it's done, I'm through with you, he says to them a lot like he said to the church at Sardis. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The promise to the children of Israel then, the promise to the church at Sardis then is the promise to us now. That when we turn in humble repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we will be made new, that he will be with us, and that we walk not in our own power, but in his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to deliver your word. I pray that it goes forth as, as you would have it go. In Jesus' name, amen.